In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So that's Daniel chapter 1. If you would come up, Montez, we'll pray for you. Thanks, Greg. No worries. Lord, thank you for dwelling with Montez this week as he prepared today's sermon. We ask that you continue to be with him as he fearlessly speaks out what you have laid upon his heart and mind. We ask also that you would enable us to hear clearly and receive humbly your word through Montez's words. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Greg, and thanks for that. That's a gigantic... <coughs> uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not assessment, uh, assumption that I prepared, but I have prepared. I promise you, I have prepared. Um, not that it may make much difference. It may be as bad as it was last week. I can't do anything about that. You're lumped with that after all. You're the crazy people who called us all the way over here from Britain. Lush, green fields, 
cloud and rain and cold. I mean, who'd want to leave Britain? <laughs> eh? No, it's a lovely country, seriously. And, uh, but uh, hey, so is us, and I, I, I'm sure so is every part of the world. Wherever we're from, each part of the world has its own endemic beauty. Border force. So look, back in Britain, we, we love, uh, well, not me personally, but we love, seem to love watching your border force programs that are aired in Britain. We have uh, your airports, uh, and we watch as the Australian uh, Immigration Department, you know, uh, just, just are vicious towards immigrants coming into the country. It's just awful to watch. I think it's designed to deter anyone coming into Australia. But here's how they work. I mean, so obviously a lot of people coming through uh, border control and they don't have time to, to speak to everyone. So they're looking for telltale signs. They're looking at people. And they're watching uh, your emotions, body language, watching what you wear. I mean, if it's peak summer and you're wearing a big duffel jacket like I would be, you know, it, it just looks a bit suspicious. So they're looking for anything that stands out, anything out of the ordinary. Small details that give away that someone is doing something illegal. Here's what I want to ask. Is there something about our lives, about my life, about your life, that is suspicious? That stands out, that's beyond the ordinary, something that would catch someone's attention. Is there something about me, the way I do my work, that is a telltale sign of something that is different about me? Daniel, we're going to start Daniel chapter 1 for proper, to proper today. And here's where we're going. Daniel 1 insists that there must be unique differences visible within a professor of faith. That someone, somewhere, can discern. So let's look at it together. We're in chapter one for real this time. Last time we were just playing, which is covered the introduction, verses one and two. We, we're going to try and finish the chapter together this morning. We won't do verse by verse, but we're gonna capture the, the majority of the details. So here's our heading, our only heading. Fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing to assimilate into the world. Fidelity, faithfulness, fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing to assimilate into the world. Let me ask, what do we think of when we think of the spoils of war? What comes to mind, Deb? The spoils of war. Yeah, the die. So I'm thinking more the spoils, the gains of the victors. The spoils of war. Taking over, new Taking over the country. Planting your military bases there. Oil. No one likes to admit that's one, but that's a real one, isn't it? Spoils of war. In ancient times, 
It was gold, livestock, people. You can imagine what kind of perversity was involved in taking people, particularly females, into captivity. Look, what about this? Have you ever thought of the spores of war as being the intellectual abilities of your enemies? Nebuchadnezzar thinks so. In fact, he's building an entire empire on this, on this particular spoil of war. You see, for Nebuchadnezzar, as was common practice at the time, it was thought to be sensible not only to capture and remove the wealth of your enemy, but to keep your enemy alive and to utilize their intellectual benefits. And so Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the city of Jerusalem, utterly destroyed it and its temple, killed a lot of people on the way, but kept alive the elite and educated members of society, marched them 900 miles across harsh desert to Babylon, and there he gets to work on his captives. And that's really where, after the parenthesis of verses one and two, we enter chapter one for real. Verse three, then the king ordered Aspenes, chief of his officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, handsome, obviously wasn't thinking about you there, Brenton, was I, come on. Handsome, okay, without, uh, well, I've lost myself now, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The best of Israel or Judah, both physically and mentally, the best of Judah are selected. And amongst the royalty and nobility are these particular people. Now, these are probably only teenagers, late teens, uh, at the early 20s uh, at the oldest. They're to be trained in the best, I mean, thank you, uh, Ross, already told us something of Moses' training, these are to be trained in the best that Babylonia has to offer. The, lo- the language of the time is a language called Akkadian. I think I have a picture. If you are interested, it seems like an easy language. It was one of the most complex languages to write. One of the most complex languages of history. They were to learn that fully. They were to learn, in addition, divination, reading the stars, astrology, uh, celestial phenomena, uh, cutting open sheep and reading liver, and so forth. Moreover, they were probably forced to become eunuchs. Their gender erased. You see, the king, the king would not have men serving anywhere near his courts who could be any danger sexually to his prize women. And so, including in this training, and this is where we get into now, which lasts three years, is a Babylonian diet. The king, verse five, assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And that's where the chapter gets really interesting. It flavors, excuse the pun, it flavors the rest of what we're looking at this morning. So verse six, we're introduced finally to the lead character. Uh, you know, it's only six verses in. 
Here he is, and this is the character that will appear right through the book, verse six. Among these were from Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Hazariah. Azariah. Daniel is either of royal descent then, and some people suggest he may be related to King Hezekiah. Is at least royalty, probably, well, he's at least nobility, probably royalty. There's at least three other Daniels in the book. This is a relatively new character. Scholars dispute whether or not it's one Daniel who writes the book, whether or not it's the Daniel of the time. They dispute whether or not the book was written when he was written, because one of the big issues with Daniel is that in his prophecies, chapter seven to 12, are clinically, military, precise. And so the question arises, doesn't it? You know, could Daniel really have written a book that speaks about uh, the Maccabean revolt, started 165 BC? Daniel's writing or living in was something like uh, 6th century BC. Could Daniel really have written with such precision about the Maccabean revolt 400 years later? And so scholars, liberal, I'd argue, are suggesting, well, I Daniel... This couldn't have been written by one person. B, it couldn't have been written in the exile period because it's too precise. I mean, who could know about the future? And so here's a response. Here's how we respond to any scholarship of that nature. Look, when the Bible says something, it's true. Let God be true and every man a liar. And the book of Daniel has the inscription of Daniel at its heading. It's written by Daniel. In fact, throughout the book, we, we see various clues. Listen to this, Daniel chapter eight. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. And throughout the book, there's these little pointers suggesting that just as the book says, Daniel is the author. The strongest point for that, if you're interested in, in biblical scholarship, is Jesus. I don't know about you, but for me, but when Jesus says something, it's true. Matthew 24, Matthew 24, here's Jesus. Next slide, I think. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, Jesus did not dispute the historicity of the book of Daniel. Written by him. Written, no doubt, sometime during or just after his service. Daniel served three kings. His, his reign, if you like, his position in power lasted 60 years. During that time, perhaps just at the end of it, maybe something like 530 BC now, Daniel writes his memoirs of both his experience and of a prophetic word about the future. Not just about immediate future, the, the Maccabean revolt 400 years later, but he speaks about with precision, even there, about the return of Jesus Christ, about the establishment of a new earth, about the reign of the king. All that comes from Daniel the prophet. So Daniel's the author. It's probably around 532 BC, after his 60 years of service, to the superpowers of his time. And then 
we're told in verse 21 that Daniel remained there until the year of King Cyrus. That's a change of government or superpower. I'll give you one more fact that you may not be interested. If I'm boring you, please forgive me. The Bible is written in Greek, New Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But there's three books of the Bible, including Daniel, where there's small chapters in another language. What's the language? It's the other language, which is, and it's the one Jesus would have spoken in his time because it, it was a language that was very prevalent, Aramaic. So, so Daniel 2 to 7, uh, Ezra, and there's a chapter in Jeremiah, all have these inserts of an Aramaic text. We're not sure why. So, so if you ever in a biblical trivia, you know the answer. Okay, a part of the, of the training program, including which is to indoctrinate these dear people and to assimilate them into their culture, is to change their names. And so most Jewish names had some connotation of Yahweh, the name of God, or Elohim, the word for God, Daniel, which meant God is my judge. So Daniel gets changed to Belshazzar, which, which used to mean God is my judge, Yahweh is my judge, or Elohim. But it now means a God, a foreign God, a God other than Yahweh is my judge. And also the names of Hananiah gets changed to Shadrach, Mishael to Meshach, and Azariah to Abednego. Sounds like a place in Victoria, doesn't it? Abednego, that is. Okay, l- let me move on, let me move on. That's some of the background. I want to move on to the issue at hand. And it's one that's a bit of a conundrum. And we'll try and work at it before we get to our application. Verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. It's a difficult one. It's going to come up. If you're doing uh, the Daniel uh, home group, it's going to come up this week. So here's the multi-million dollar question. What's wrong with Babylonian food? Why won't Daniel eat? <laughs> yeah, that's certainly one. I'm going to come. Thank you very much, um, uh, David's wife. <laughs> Sorry, Fran. Yeah, I have these moments, you see, when I haven't slept so well, uh, Fran. Uh, yes, let me just come to that. That's a good point Fran has made. What is wrong? Because here's one of the issues. Because, because here's a man, a young man, maybe only a teenager, who's making a stand. Okay? Yeah, but up to now, he's accepted a name change. He's probably been made a eunuch. And he's undergoing systematic brainwashing by Babylonian curriculums. So why now and what is it about? What is this about? One of the points there, Fran has just brought to be certainly an interesting one. Some suggest, hey, look, it's two or three things. Look, it's, it's possible, it's quite possible that it's not kosher. Seriously. I mean, as a Jew, meat had to be killed a particular way in order for it to be kosher and acceptable for a Jew. It's possible that is the case. It's possible also that, look, hey, what would foreign... What would foreign 
foreign worship, worshippers of foreign gods, what would they do with their meat and their food as a part of their worship practices? Offer it to the God. It may well be, it's not kosher, it may well be, and, and you know, there's probable chance, look, this is meat that's been offered to an idol. Daniel can't eat this. The issue there is, so we were probably the vegetables, and he's eating those. No, I think it's something, look, I'm sure it's those elements, but something more perhaps, and this is why you need to buy the new Bible commentary. Look, I've read about five or six commentaries on, on this book, but I found the best one was that one one portion of the New Bible Commentary, just $40, 50 to you, Andrew, today, take it away, okay? I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's that and more. This is Daniel saying, I'm drawing a line in the sand. Thus far, look, the name change he had no control over. The king would have killed him for it. Being a made a eunuch, he had no choice. Okay, the foreign curriculum, no one asked him. But the food, it almost seems as though Daniel has found an area where he can protest, when he can say no. And so in the area of food, I think this is, this is Daniel's point, that whatever it is, whether it's because it's not kosher, whether it's offered to idols or whatever it may be, Daniel's point is simple, that here's an opportunity for me to say no. For me to say I'm a Jew. For me to say I worship Yahweh. For me to say I won't follow you on this. I am not your clone. And I think that's really what's going on here. Daniel refuses to be any further assimilated into Babylonian culture. He will not eat the meat or drink the drink. And drinks weren't kosher. Anyone, you could drink any drink you wanted, even including wine. I think what Daniel is doing, friends, is something we lack, and I think Ross mentioned it earlier, and it's a really good point, Ross, is that what's often lacking in Christian circles, religious circles, is wisdom. You see, Daniel was wise. Look, he wanted to. Look, let me ask you, why were the Israelites in Babylonia? Because They've been foolish. They were, they, were, they, they were mixing their God, their religion with the religions of, of the nations because they were turning their backs on God, because they weren't standing for God. Daniel is determined he is going to make a stand for God. He's going to. But look, he uses, his, he uses the gray cells. He's wise. Okay, he can be a eunuch. Uh, okay, he'll have the education because he's not going to believe any of it. Uh, uh, and okay, he will... He will have his name changed. Hey, it's just a name. Who cares? Okay? But on this point, and on this mark, at this juncture, Daniel, it seems to me, is saying, enough is enough is enough. I am a Jew. Whatever the cost of that may be, at this juncture, that is my position. Daniel resolved. It means he was determined not to defile himself with the royal food. And I think that defiling there is just a general defiling of a man who's living undercover in captivity. And Daniel is saying, it's now time for me to say, I'm a Jew. I can't eat this. And his excuse may well have been, look, it's not kosher. And it's, you know, that may have been an excuse. But the really behind that 
Is Daniel saying, no, I am a Jew, I'm committed to Yahweh, and there's certain things about me that must remain distinctive. Fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing to assimilate into the world. So that's Daniel. But I don't really care about Daniel. He lived, what, what nearly 3,000 years ago? And what would it matter to me? I want to know what Jesus thinks of this, yeah? And I want to challenge you with this, friends, that any part of the Bible that is picked up by any preacher must ultimately get me to Jesus. If a preacher leaves you without Jesus, fire him. Then and then. And so Daniel, so Daniel, okay, that's Daniel's life. Now Daniel, what did Jesus say about all scripture? Matthew, John 5. These are the scriptures that, this is not on the screen, Megs, that testify about me. Daniel has to testify about Jesus. So what does Daniel tell us about Jesus? In what scenario, like Daniel's, do we see Jesus? What about his trial? Remember Jesus at the trial? He's standing before the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the mob, the vigilantes, okay? And they're pressuring him to conform. Tell us, tell us that you're one of us. Tell us you're just like us. Tell us it's all lies, that you don't think you're someone great. Tell us that you're just a common Jew. What kind of pressure was Jesus under at that moment to conform, to, to be one of them? What kind of pressure was he under to say, yeah, look, I'm just like you? He's under the pressure of life and death. And what does he do? Jesus has an opportunity now to either identify with the Jews and just say, look, I'm just like you, or draw a line in the sand and say, no, actually, I want you to know that I am your creator. And what does he do? And remember, Jesus is the greater Daniel. If Daniel is holy, Jesus is holy Holy, holy. Listen to his response. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's Daniel personified in his brilliance. He's standing before the high priest and they say, we charge you under oath. Tell us, are you one of us? And Jesus says, well, he is the Christ. And Jesus says, I am the Christ. It's as you say. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, my, of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. This is Jesus in his Daniel moment saying, thus far and no more. Because if you remember, what do you notice about Jesus' ministry? Throughout his ministry, what does he do with his deity? What does he do about his deity? What does he say about his deity? Somebody tell me. Throughout his ministry, thank you, Pamela. Throughout his ministry, he never answers the question. Every time they think he's the king, he slips away. Every time they assume he's God, he, he walks away. He never owns up to who he is. Why? Why does Jesus hide his identity all through the three years of his ministry? Because what would it have led to? It wasn't time because it would have led to his death. And so he wisely... The Daniel spirit now, he wisely chooses his battles. But now, at this juncture, draws a line, comes out of hiding, as it were, and said, it's true. 
I'm not like you at all. In fact, I'm nothing like you. I am God. I am the one who created you. And you will see my authority and glory when I return. Fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing to assimilate into the world. And so here's here's what we learn then. We've seen Daniel. We've seen how he points to Jesus. Jesus is the greater Daniel. Here's what we do with it. What do we do? Where, Where do we go? What do we take from this? Seems to me, Christian, and please forgive me, I'm new to Australian culture, so maybe I'm misjudging Australian culture, but this is at least British. It seems to me that the greatest challenge facing the church in the 21st century is its call to retain its distinctiveness, to maintain its witness. In an age where the mantra is that we have to be as much like the world as possible in order to reach them with the gospel, the Bible, it seems to me, is calling for us to be distinct. It's calling for us to refuse assimilation. It's calling for us to say we are different. Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, we've already read it to the children, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. The church, friends, well, you may not like it, and if this hurts, and I'm going to say regardless, church, you are an alien entity in this world. You do not belong here. And that may hurt, but get used to it. We are foreigners. I'm not the only foreigner in this room, right? (laughs) Because we're all foreigners here. Foreigners in an alien world. And that's Jesus' point in John 1. It it, it says our birth has come by order of the king. Our birth is like the birth of no other on the planet. We are unique people. And at some point, friends, at some point in our experience, in our walk, like Daniel, like Jesus, we must draw the line in the sand, state our differences, and make a stand for Jesus. Say we are different. Say our standards are different. Say that we live differently. That we believe different things. And that we are different. We do not belong to this world any more than Daniel belonged to Babylon and any more than Jesus belonged to it. And the problem is, is when we think that we do. You see, fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing to assimilate into the world. What's the message of Romans 12? It's those famous verses. Most of us will probably know Romans 12, 1 to 2. I I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, uh, to not to uh, conform. Yes, it's come up on the screen. Thank you. It's much easier if I read it. I'll read it. Okay, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What's that saying? about how I conduct my life and how we conduct ourselves 
in this world. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. You see, it seems to me one of the challenges we face as Christians and one of the challenges we face as a church is that we believe that in order to reach the gospel that we have to be the church, uh, be the world rather. Or we have to get as close to the world as we possibly can. Let me tell you a story. I'm sure it's made up. So a king uh, of an ancient world is looking for a new charioteer. Fancy that? Okay, beats a Ferrari. Okay, this is six, you know, six horsepower, maybe eight. Okay, so look, he's looking for a new charioteer to, 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 to move him from his destination to, lo- to destination. So he interviews three people for the job and he says, look, en route to the palace, there's a part where we're going over a big chasm and there's, there's, this, there's this bridge and it's, re- it's quite narrow and if it's, it's so dangerous that if you get c- too close to the edge, you'll fall off the chariot, will go over and I'll be dead. Now I'm looking for a new driver, tell me, number one, how close can you get to that edge without endangering my life. So the first charioteer so responds, I can, King, I can get to within two feet of that edge and guarantee your safety. The king says, ah, pretty good, pretty good, Pierres. He comes along to John, says, John, John, look, okay, number two, how close can you get me to the edge of that precipice without endangering my life, without me losing my life? And John's response, you know, John's a hotshot guy, you know, thinks he's much better than Pierre's. You know, says, hey, king, I can get you to within one foot, excuse me, one foot of the edge. And the king goes, I am pretty impressed. And the third guy comes along, Des, it's Des, okay? And he goes, Des, how close can you get me to the edge without us falling over? And Des's response is, king, I will value your life so highly, I would drive that chariot as far away from the edge as I possibly could get. The point is simple, friends. It's not a competition to see how close we can get before we get burnt. It's how far away we can stay so that we retain our distinctiveness. It's not how closely we can resemble the world, but it's how far we need to keep the world from us to keep our distinctiveness as the people of God. Back in Wales, not the new one, the imitation one, the new South Wales, uh, the original South Wales, okay, I was, uh, went to a coffee morning or something at a church. It looked like a lovely building, warehouse that renovated it. And there, I saw one of the posters at the front of the building advertising a service. And the poster, next slide please, make, it was a bit, bit like this. It was an empty stage with, with all these musical instruments. It was a darkened room. It looked like a rock concert hall. Uh, and, and it said above the poster, advertising the services, church has changed. Welcome to the new sessions. Rivergate Christian community will never sell itself as a rock concert hall. Never. It's not about how closely 
we can replicate the world is by keeping our distinctiveness. You see, we're not selling the world what it already has. They've got rock concerts. Do you know that? They don't need you to put one on for them. They've got them and they're much better than you can ever do. What they don't have, what they don't have is the Bible taught the Word of God. If you ever want a picture that brands your church, it's not a guitar, it's the book. If Rivergate needs an identity, and I'm sure it's already got this identity, this is. And that may seem boring, and that may not come, but believe me, in every heart that Jesus is working, they will flock to, for this book. They will flock to hear it. It's the craving of every soul in whose heart the Spirit is working. They don't need drums. They don't even need your food. They need the Word of God. That's the distinctive. The church must retain Christian. It's not about how closely we can resemble the world. It's about how closely we can resemble Jesus. Fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing to assimilate into the world. That's how we may look for a church. Our distinctive will always be the proclamation of Jesus' word. I love the band. But the band or music group is not the selling point of this church. It's the proclamation of the word. That is our distinctive. That is what sets us apart. That is our greatest sales pitch. The word of God. So that's how it looks for church. But I want to ask a question in closing, in a further point of application. What does that look like for, for Debbie? who's in a workplace, eight, ten hours a day, Monday to Friday. What does that look like for Andrew or, or for John? Mind you, maybe it looks different for this guy who's jetting around the world. I mean, that's a bit different. <laughs> how, how does it look for, for, for this lady? Mind you, her workplace is weird. She just, she just buries people. Oh, 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 what does it look like for this guy? Beyond a desk. What does this refusing to assimilate into our world look like behind a desk five days a week before the world is watching. I want to say, friends, look, what do we do when we're at work and everyone's clocking off 15 minutes early to go and have a chin wag in the corner? What do we do in that circumstance? What do we do when our colleagues are bad-mouthing the boss at every tea break? What do we do then? What do we do when our mates at work are telling that dirty joke or speaking about the girls in the office and what they want to do with them? What's our response then? What about when somebody's bad-mouthing God directly and using his name as a swear word, the guy on the desk next to us? What do we do then? You see, here's the thing. Each of those scenarios requires a Daniel, a Jesus. Because it's not a one-size-fits-all. 
And Daniel tells us that. Remember, Daniel chose his battle. Each of these scenarios, friends, needs us to prayerfully, thoughtfully think out a response. The worst thing, here's the thing, look, the worst thing surely that we can do is to, in, in the first day of a new job, to be mouthing off to everybody, look, I'm a, hallelujah, I'm a hallelujah Christian, and I speak in tongues. Do you want me to pray for you? I mean, that's just not the way to do it. But it's got to come out somewhere. There's got to be a time when we say it's time to speak. There has to come a time, friends, surely, when in our workplace we have to say, actually, look, I've accepted that. Look, you know, I've been listening to you, you know, talking about the boss for the last six months. But, you know, look, you know, but now I can't do that anymore. Because the Bible is really clear that to gossip is to contradict the word of God. And you see, there's a way to do it, and there's a manner to do it, and there's a moment to do it, but it has to be done at some point at school, at, at work, down at the whatever club we go to. We have to draw the line under the sand and say, enough is enough. I'm a Christian. And what you've just said, friend, and, and this may, expect, may affect our friendship, but what you've just said offends me. That Jesus that you've just swore about is a Jesus that died for me. It's the Jesus that I care about. A and I won't listen to his name being spoken of like that again. Have we ever done that? Does anybody know I'm a Christian at work? Have we ever drew a line in the sand and said, thus far and no more? Jesus' challenge to us Christians is that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And those things are saying that there has to be something about us that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing assimilation into the world. And as I close now, one sentence. Look at verse 9 and verse 17. Daniel makes a stand for God for his faith, for Yahweh. Listen, look how God responds to that. Verse 9, God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Verse 17, God gave them knowledge and understanding. It seems clear to me, friends, that what God is saying to us surely is this, that when you put your neck out for me, when you're prepared to say, thus far and no more, when you're willing to say, no, I'm a Christian, and I can't say that about that girl. God promises. Well, this is an example at least. That he shows us his favor, his support, his grace. He comes alongside us, gives us the help we need and the grace we need. When Daniel made his stand, the chief eunuch, the chief official, showed him favor because God rewired his heart. Christian, it may cost you. You may lose your job. You may lose cred with your mates. In some countries, you may lose your head. But God stands with you. And you have his favor 
and his support when you make a stand for him. Fidelity to God reveals itself. Fidelity to God reveals itself by wisely refusing to assimilate into the world. May God give us grace to do so. Thank you for listening.